Acts chapter 2. And um, you know, you all know it's Easter Sunday, and year after year we have this um, special occasion marked out to really help us to recall and remember a most momentous occasion in human history. And what I wanted to do for this morning is help us all to think about it by not telling you, you know, things that maybe I have an opinion about or things about that, but let's look at what the first ever sermon that was preached publicly in the history of the church was all about. And it was all about the resurrection and what, what meaning that has for all of humanity. So turn with me there to Acts chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 32 to verse 36. This is the first ever public sermon in the history of the Christian church, preached by the Apostle Peter. And this is his ending, his final climax of his message to the crowds in Jerusalem on that day. Verse 32 begins to read like this. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for leading every single one of us individually here this morning to draw together to worship you and to receive from your word. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open all of our hearts to hear with proper ears, that is to receive and to truly trust everything that you are saying to us from your word. We're asking your Holy Spirit to move within us, Lord, because we so desperately need to hear from you. And so we pray that you'd be merciful and gracious to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Here is the conclusion of the first ever sermon in church history. And it's Peter preaching in Jerusalem to packed out crowds there in a festival called Pentecost. And there's something amazing happening where people hear rushing of wind and suddenly there's these disciples of Jesus who previously were hidden, afraid of the authorities, finding them out, but now preaching publicly and in all different languages of people in those days. Many different languages. And people were amazed and, and struck with wonder, saying, what are these people saying? And Peter is explaining to them what it is that they have to say. And we've just read there his conclusion of his great message. And this Pentecost is 50 days after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. 50 days after the crucifixion. And here's Peter giving this great message. And you'll notice his conclusion is essentially there in verse 36. Let's read it again so that we have in our minds exactly what it is he's trying to say. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And we could break it down very simply. He makes one big claim that we can probably understand in two small claims. That here is this person that he's talking about whom God has declared with certainty that he is both Lord and Christ. That is his conclusive message that Peter is giving to all the people of Jerusalem. 
And he's trying to be as comprehensive as he can to his countrymen, to his fellow Israelites. Let all the house of Israel know for certain. Now, what is he referring to when he puts this person, Jesus, that he's talking about as both Lord and Christ? I want us to think a little bit about what is exactly is he claiming. Because what I want to say for us this morning is from the very beginning of the church till now, 2,000 odd years later, the message of the Bible has not changed. And the message of Easter, the true message, has not changed either. And what is true of Peter's message to the people of Jerusalem in those days is going to be directly true of us today too. And so his claim that this Jesus who was crucified and yet has been raised is both Lord and Christ, he's making that claim to every single one of you also. And so it's really imperative for us to understand what exactly is he saying, both Lord and Christ. And I think those terms, if we understand them properly, especially in the context of the Old Testament, are very simple things for us to understand. We take the simplest of them all, that he is Lord. And we see in this passage that he refers to something that the great King David, a momentous figure in the history of the Old Testament, had a prophecy in his vision from God, seeing that the Lord God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. And we see all throughout the Old Testament, there is talk and there is prophecy of a great king that God himself has chosen, whom God gives all authority and dominion to. And all the nations on earth, every human being, will one day bow their knees and acknowledge him as king whether in defeat or whether gladly and willingly out of service. But here is this person that God has declared, I will make king over all the earth, over every human being. And there's the simple, most clear claim there that Peter says this Jesus who was crucified, he is that Lord who was long promised. He is that great king whom God has declared is at his right hand. We see that here, don't we? There in verse 33, exalted at the right hand of God. The Bible says that is where Jesus is right now. He's been sitting there ever since his ascension into heaven. And he's sitting there today. Because he is that long promised King and Lord that God had been teaching the Israelites about throughout the Old Testament. That God has set up his own son as the Lord over all things. Now, what does a good king do? He conquers enemies, doesn't he? He provides and protects his people. And that is the first claim about this Jesus who was crucified. He is that Lord and that king who protects his own, who guides them and gives them victory, who will give to them all good things because of his great might as the king, who will defeat all enemies, whose victory is absolutely certain. Absolutely certain. That is the first claim that Peter makes 2,000 years ago. And if I were to make it, you know, what would he say to us today? He would say, let all the inhabitants of New Zealand know for certain that this Jesus is the great king. He is your king, whether or not you want to recognize him as such. He is the king that God has set and if God has set something in motion, 
no human being will ever be able to overturn what God has decided to do. There's that first claim that Jesus is your Lord. God has put him at his right hand as the Lord over all things. That's a pretty big claim, isn't it? It's an amazing claim. And yet that's not all because Peter goes on to say that he's not only Lord, but he's both Lord and Christ. Now, what does he mean there? Most people in our day think that Christ is Jesus' last name, his surname. But the Christ, properly speaking, in the Bible is a title. It means the chosen one, the anointed one, one that has been set aside for a most special mission. And again, the Old Testament is filled with references and promises and prophecies of an anointed one, God's holy servant, who would accomplish one thing. He would save God's people from their sin and from the death that is coming to them, from the wrath they deserve for being such wicked people before a holy and good God. He is the promised Savior. That is what people... What Peter is referring to when he uses the title, he is the Christ. He is the the Savior, the long-promised one of God who would rescue people from their sins. Who would rescue people from their estrangement from God. Their separation from the one who made them and sustains them and gives them life. He is the one who will save his people from their sins. In fact, that's why his name is Jesus Meaning he is the one who will save his people from their sins. We read that from the very beginning of the gospel accounts. He is the one who will bring human beings who have left God because of our selfishness and our pride. He is the one who will bring us back to God. Just look at the world today. I don't think I need to spend much time at all making a case to you that there is something seriously wrong with our world. In fact, Look within your own heart and consciences. There is something seriously not perfect about us as human beings. Something is deadly wrong. We do not treat other people with love. We are so easily led to selfishness and greed and lust and envy and covetousness. All manner of evil desires and actions. Just look at the world today. Just this morning I woke up to the news that someone in Arendelle has sustained gunshot injuries. What causes all of these things in our world? The Bible gives one answer. It is sin within human hearts. It is because we do not know God, the giver of all life, as we should. We do not love Him and treat Him with the honor and respect and thanksgiving that we should. Rather, we go about naturally thinking that we have the right to do whatever we want to do. My dear friends, if every human being in this world does whatever it is they want to do, This world would be in utter chaos. This world would be in complete destruction if we were left to our own desires. I don't think I need to make much of a case of that at all. See, the more important question, which every single person needs an answer to, is what are we to do about this universal problem? God has given an answer. He says, I will send a servant, a chosen one, a savior who will rescue every single person from this sin that dwells within them. This thing that cuts them off from me, that in the end will cause them to deserve my righteous judgment. What the Bible describes as God's justice, God's wrath. A most terrifying thing for someone who's guilty to face the judge. 
for a thief to meet the police because they know that they are guilty of crime and trespass. That is the position every human being is in, in the eyes of God, the great and good and perfect God. And so Jesus, Peter declares, he is that long-awaited Savior. He alone can rescue human beings from that terrible place that they are all in with God. He alone can bring people to God perfectly. And He is not only a Christ that helps you out by giving you tips and advice. No, He brings you perfectly to God because of what He has done in your place. He took upon Himself all the punishment that a sinner would deserve before God. And he says, sign my name there on the dotted line. I will bear the burden on the cross. And in his resurrection, he says, everything that I have accomplished, my great victory from death, give it to those whom I have died for. Give it to those who believe in me. Give it to those I've achieved this victory for. I am a savior who is able to save to the uttermost everyone who draws near to God through me. These are all words from the Bible. This is the great message that God has given to humanity. That this Jesus is the only Savior given to mankind. But oh, what a perfect Savior He is. And regardless of how messed up you are, if you come to Jesus this morning, He gives you the promise that you are perfectly reconciled with God. Perfectly forgiven of all things and embraced and loved with the full force of God's infinite love. That is because of how great a Savior He is. That is because of how great the love of God is in giving to us this perfect salvation. But there's the claim that Jesus is the Savior that God has given. He is the only Savior available. And He has been offered to every human being through Peter, and from the history of the Christian church through the preaching of the gospel. And here this morning, every single one of you has the opportunity to receive Jesus as the Savior of your soul, don't you? Every one of you is hearing these words, reading these things from the Bible, preserved for us 2,000 years later. Every single one of you is presented with Christ as the Savior. Now those are two great claims that Peter makes, that this Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That's what we hear in the, this morning in this passage. Now the most important thing here with these claims is, what evidence do you have to back this up? What audacity do you have, O Peter, to make these great claims? He's not simply saying on the day of Pentecost, hey, everybody in Jerusalem, it is my great philosophical wisdom in suggesting to you that this Jesus is Lord in Christ. He's not saying to them, guys, I think it is a great idea for you to agree with me that Jesus is Lord in Christ. No, in verse 36, we read it ourselves. Let all the house of Israel know for certain. Let there be no doubt Jesus is Lord in Christ. How can he make such a certain assumption, such a certain um, assertion? What reason does he give for doing that? This Jesus God raised up. It's the real reason why we celebrate Easter. There has been something that has taken place in human history, in time and space, in reality, that now makes certain 
these claims that are being made, this Jesus that I'm talking about, he has been raised up from the grave. The tomb that he was put in by his enemies remains empty to this day. His very enemies, the Pharisees, they could not deny the reality of the empty tomb. All they could come up with is, let us spread the lie that his disciples stole his body. Because they did not have the body and they did not know where to find it. And let us not be confused. People say, well, maybe the disciples really did. You know, the Pharisees, they knew where the disciples were. They could have arrested them and tortured them until they found out where the body was. In Acts 4, they were arrested. The authorities never attempted to do so. They didn't know where the body was. The disciples proclaimed one thing. All of the empty tomb, all of these things, all the eyewitness sightings of the resurrected Lord was all pointing to one simple conclusion. He has been raised from the grave. Peter is saying to his fellow Israelites who knew the Old Testament from the moment they were children, don't you know the Bible from the beginning has been predicting that God's servant would die and then be raised again. You can read it early on from verse 32. It talks very clearly about how God had already promised that his servant would see death but then be raised from the grave. See, God had decided, I mean, it's such a momentous thing, isn't it? To send a Lord in Christ. God does not want any human being to miss it. And so he does something that has never been done before, nor has been ever repeated in human history, nor will it ever be. That a man be crucified, put in a tomb, and then be raised from the death to attain a kind of life, not, not to be raised to die again, but to be raised into a life that will never, ever end. Jesus to this day has not died again. He will never taste death again. It is the resurrection of Jesus from the grave to which Peter points as the certain foundation and evidence for which you can know for certain that this Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That is his absolute confidence. And every single Easter, as we think of the historical eyewitness testimony of the apostles preserved down for us, that is the same message given to every single one of you, especially on this Easter Sunday. Jesus is written, risen. That is the historical fact that has been passed down through the church. You know, the description of the Christian message is not good philosophy or good suggestions or good life advice. It is good news. And news is fact. News is reality that is reported. News is something that has happened. See, my dear friends, we are not talking about here something subjective, something relative to what people themselves would like to believe or would like to agree with. So much of our day is filled with this idea of, well, what, it is, what is it that you really prefer? What would you like? What is your great opinion? Again, look closely at Peter's words here in verse 36. He is not giving suggestions. He is not appealing to what reality the crowds would like to believe in. He is appealing to an objective fact. Things that have been accomplished in history. Things that cannot be changed just because you would not like to accept it. You would not like to agree with it. You know, something that still makes me laugh to this day with my children is that 
they are coming to grips with what are the limits of reality, aren't they? You know, one day it was raining, and oh, my daughters, they wanted to go out to play. They say to me, Daddy, I don't want it to rain. I don't want it to be raining. Let us stop raining. And you kind of have to smile to yourself and say, wow, I don't have the power to change the weather for you, and you certainly don't have the power to change the weather. Because we all know we cannot change reality. We cannot change certain truths that are existing outside of our own preferences. That is what we are dealing with this Easter Sunday. That is what we are dealing with when we come to this core message of the Christian faith. What we are dealing with in the very first public preaching of the gospel in church's history. Peter says this is objective reality. Jesus has been crucified, he has been buried, and he has been raised from the grave. He is now seated at the right hand of God. Do you think that's incredible? Nothing is too wonderful for God. Do you think this is untrue? Here we are, we stand as eyewitnesses, Peter says. And later on in 1 Corinthians 15, more than 500 at one time stand as witnesses. This is the message that Easter Sunday reminds us of year after year, all of it leading to one point that is meant for you to think about this morning. You are to know for certain this morning that God has made Jesus Christ both Lord and Savior. He is the only Lord. He is the only Savior. That is objective truth and reality. The only question for you this Easter Sunday is, what is your response to this message what is your reaction to this truth that is being proclaimed to you my friends we all know with things like reality that if you ignore it you ignore it at your own hurt and risk if my daughter were to say no i i declare that it is sunny and they run out they're going to get wet because it is still raining in fact she did try to do that on one occasion and as a good dad you stop her and say let me put a raincoat on you before you go out see my dear friends if this is objective reality, it is news, then you reject it to your own detriment and hurt. If Jesus is the only Lord whom one day you will come to bow your knees to, if he is the only Savior who can rescue you from the death that you are heading towards and bring you to God and to receive eternal life, and you reject him, you choose to disregard him, then your blood will be upon your own head. And that is the most terrible thing. I don't want that to be true of any of you. And so the message to you is, come and receive Jesus. Come and accept this truth God has made so certain. He has not done any of this in a corner. Haven't you thought how incredible it is that all around the world, people are celebrating Easter still. People are still remembering Christmas even though you might say so much of our country is, is not Christian, which is so true, and yet God in His mercy, year after year through these traditions, without realizing or being conscious of it, our whole country receives a reminder of what God has done in history. God didn't have to do that. All of it is an expression of God's mercy and calling our entire nation, our entire world to come to know Him. To come to realize that when God has done this momentous thing, He has left a witness for all of His human history. He has not done any of this in a corner. He has not hidden it in a part of the world where nobody would ever heard of it. He did it 
in the height of Roman civilization, where the messengers could travel on Roman roads all throughout the civilized world. And he is doing it today. Here in Little Calston, every one of you can hear this message that Jesus is Lord in Christ. Receive him. Have him. Why reject him to your own detriment and hurt? Know for certain this Easter Sunday, because of the certain historical reality of the resurrection, you must believe in Jesus. You must receive him. And when you do have him, every single believer here would turn around and testify to you what a most wonderful and loving and good King and Savior he is. One who perfectly forgives our sins at the cost of his own blood, who was willing to do so. He is a good king who protects us and guides us and looks after us all the days of, us li- of our lives. Who promises to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never turn from you in disgust because I have covered all of your sins with my own blood. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. This is the Lord and Savior that has been proclaimed. That is the message of Easter. This Jesus is Lord in Christ. You must receive him. The consequences of rejecting him is far too horrifying to, to think about and to consider. And my heart's prayer to God Almighty is that he would open all of our hearts to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That we can cry from the bottom of our hearts, there is my God, my King, the one who has bled for me and brought me back to God. Let us pray now and ask for the Lord's help. Oh, great Lord, we thank you so much for this Sunday, for this Easter Sunday. Thank you so much, Lord, that you have left witnesses and reminders pointing us to the truth of who Jesus is. Thank you so much for that great mercy, Lord. We must confess the whole summary of human history is one of trying to turn away from you and to run away from you so that we might be our own little gods and kings doing whatever it is we want to do. Oh, Lord, forgive us. And thank you so much for your mercy. At the very least, on Easter and Christmas, we are all reminded that here is Jesus, declared with total certainty to be the Lord and Savior of the world, to all who believe in Him. Thank you so much for that merciful reminder. Thank you for this morning, a most merciful reminder. And God, our one prayer to you now is that you would turn every single heart here this morning to you in faith and repentance to accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we might be reconciled to you, that we might have all of our sins forgiven, that we might receive life everlasting, all through the greatness of who Jesus is. Turn our eyes on Christ, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' victorious name. Amen.